Upset Patterns listeners, I'm Will Comperdal. My guest today is Beatrice Cherrier of the University of CSRN in France. Beatrice, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Our topic today is about how economics has shifted from an approach considered theoretical to one that is more empirical, or what is sometimes called applied economics. Now, the economists of centuries ago didn't have much data to work with. So their data set was often little more than stories and observations in the books that were available to them. But as time went on, more economic data was collected, and of course, computers improved the abilities for economists to test their models against real-world data. But even with all the data you can imagine and all the most powerful computers, you still need theory as a way to explain how the data fits into a broader explanation. So before we get into how this relationship has changed over the last handful of decades, Beatrice, what exactly do we mean when we talk about economics being theoretical or empirical? Um, so first, so it's not our choice of categories. It's, so you get two ways of approaching the issue. If you are like a philosopher of economics, you try to analyze economic practice with a very specific meaning for theoretical and a very specific meaning for empirical. And this is not the kind of thing that you do. I Basically, I begin by taking as my object economics discourse, and the discourse right now is that you're having a, quote, empirical revolution, for instance, or that, quote, theory is dying. So uh, the problem is that not two economists have exactly the same definition of theory or empirical work, but roughly, you can say theory is a set of abstract a hypothesis about general phenomena, and I guess the key uh, thing here is the ability to generalize. I mean, to have like people might say like lows. Maybe we don't have lows in economics, but there is a certain drive to get at general explanation. Like in, but you can have different degrees of generality. It can be uh, the answer. A theory, an economic theory, can be an answer to questions like, um, do human beings behave rationally, and what does it mean to behave rationally, or uh, what's the theory for how prices or unemployment vary across time, or more specifically, uh, whether an income tax deter people from working, or why do some countries grow faster than others? So, response to that, which are pretty abstract and pretty general article theory. Um, and so, so I, before I shift to empirical work, you have a related notion that is very important in economics that um, usually theory or couch in terms of models. I mean, the way economy theorize is to write models specifically. So models is a kind of formal, it's, it formalizes theory, and in economics, usually it formalizes theory in mathematical language. For instance, the Journal of Economic Theory, you know about, for instance, it was initially meant to be called like the Journal of Mathematical Economics. So the two notions are really related. And then empirical work is the other end of the spectrum. So it starts by observing and measuring and gathering data. And and what you're supposed to do when you're an empirical economist is either quantify a phenomenon or validates the theory that is confronts uh, your data with a model. That, that's what the difference is, basically. Now, there's a perception that economics has been trending towards a more empirical approach, but you wrote a recent paper with Roger Backhouse that instead argues what has changed is the relationship between theory and empirics. Uh, so what exactly do you mean by that? Um, so, um, so this paper with Roger is, in fact, the introduction of a whole uh, volume on... on 
that that notion that there has been an empirical revolution in, in say the past 50 years in economics and we kind of challenge that notion or examine examine that 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 narrative that economics likes a lot so when they say um economics is becoming more empirical you have various ways of seeing what you mean by more it might be more in terms of quantity more in terms of diversity more in terms of quality or more in terms of prestige so uh so first we're not denying that there is more empirical work today i mean for a very simple reason for the profession has grown very much since the cold war i don't know in terms of number of economics but uh, economists but i i can tell you that um, the number of publications has grown by uh, uh, 300%, for instance, and clearly there, there was not three. There was no way economists were going to do like 300% more theory. So there is uh, that the growth in the profession has driven a lot more empirical work. Uh, so that's one thing. But now, how much is more basically? It depends what your baseline is. When when economists say we're having an empirical revolution. Their baseline is usually what the economist baseline is usually what 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 the situation was the first time the first day they were under uh, entering their graduate program or something like that. But the baseline is at best like the 60s or 70s, and it's true that in the 60s and 70s, um, uh, what the best economists were doing, what was most prestigious, what has more impact was theory. But if you shift the baseline backwards. Like, for instance, if you look at what has been going on in the profession since the beginning of the 20th century, the picture is totally different. So it's just it's just reversed the picture. Theory, that theory was dominant, was an exception. It was briefly the case between the mid-50s and the mid-80s or like 90s for a reason we explained in the paper that, that you wanted to have like a more general framework to be more like physics, to emulate physics or other kind of natural science. But if you shift backward, I mean, in the first part of the 20th century, most of what economists were doing was empirical work. I mean, the whole field of agricultural economics was about finding new empirical techniques to estimate crops and to understand growth. And so IV techniques, regression techniques, uh, that was invented largely by agricultural economics. Labor economists were doing a lot of that too. And, and the whole field of what was not yet Macroeconomics, the business cycles in the 20s to 50s was very much about trying to gather statistics and identify regularities of patterns. So that was that was a lot of empirical economics, uh, basically. So um, in that sense, it's not really true that uh, economics has been more theoretical and is now shifting to a more empirical identity. Um, then there is the problem of quantity, and usually when economists say economics is getting more empirical, they say it's getting more empirical in journals, in, in publications, and it's getting more empirical in, in prestigious, in like top five publications. What they use as data to argue that economics is becoming more empirical is studies by Amamesh, for instance, showing there, is, showing there is more and more empirical work published in the top five journals. But what it means is that it actually it means it's getting more prestigious. In in empirical economy, empirical work has been done before, and including during the Cold War and the 80s. But the difference is that it was not published in 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 academic journal, even less in top academic journals. 
in what published in NBR books or Brookings paper or or public reports and things like that. So, uh, so there is certainly uh, more empirical work in the sense that, to some extent, there is more quantity of empirical work. But more than anything else, there is larger diversity of empirical work. Uh, it's not just econometrics. You have new sets of data. You have field experiment, lab experiments, and new techniques. And 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 what's clear is that empirical work has become more prestigious. Now, why don't we use the term the term empirical? Um, because first, the evidence is not very clear. You get some papers showing there is more clearly, like a, a MMH paper shows there is more empirical work. Uh, you have a very recent uh, work by Engrist uh, and uh, co-authors. Uh, they 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 are taking uh, like uh, 80 publications in economics, and they also show that there is more empirical work. But the way they classify their papers, they show that there is more not exclusively theoretical papers, and m most of the paper they classify as empirical are both theoretical and empirical. Uh, you have a paper by Cardin de la Vigna that documents a, a new rise of theory in the last 10 years only. Uh, and, and, and so what we did, because the evidence was not clear, is uh, we went back and we looked at the John Bates-Clark citation uh, of the time. Because uh, John Bates-Clark is, is a cool tool for historians because it allows you to catch what, what is the frontier of economics at the moment it was happening. Nobel Prize. Yeah. And just a quick clarification for our listeners that might not know, the John Pigs Clark Medal is given to economists under 40, and compared to the Nobel Prize, which can be given out to economists decades after their seminal work is published, the Don John Bates Clark Medal is a little bit more, a little bit less of a time lag, uh, so it's a better indicator of the the hot research that's going on right now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. People. Yeah. So it, 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 it's um, a signal uh, of what the profession finds uh, is excellent work this year, basically. And so what we see in the John Bates Clark Medal is something that is not just more empirical. First, first you have more applied theory. The, the notion that theory itself is getting more applied appeared there, and that you have people like Peter Diamond, for instance, he would tell you, yes, I'm a theorist, but I'm an applied theorist. I take principles and I apply them to more specific uh, real world, so it's less abstract. It's to more real world situations. For instance, I want to understand whether income tax, uh, raising an income tax, uh, lower welfare or uh, or increase welfare or change the labor versus leisure decision trade-off or whatsoever. Uh, same in trade theory, even in game theory, you can have very abstract types of game theory or you want to uh, find the property of games that you know you're going to apply to model an antitrust situation or how monetary policy is being decided. So this is so first you have that new applied theory category and that doesn't really fit into a theory versus empirical work framework. And, and another thing that emerged from the analysis of the John Bates Clark situation is how much you have policy orientation more and more. So it's not just that the work is becoming empirical. It's just not that you are gonna you're gonna estimate whether uh, minimum wage uh, or allowing immigration to your country raise unemployment or not. 
This question, they're framed by policy, and they're really aimed at having an impact into the policy debate. So because of this, um, because we wanted to catch something richer than just more empirical work, we chose the world applied instead. So it's more ambiguous, but it's to us, it's better as conveying the complexity of the transformation of economics uh, happening right now. That is, uh, empirical work is changing, but theory is changing as well, and the relationship between the two is changing. It's interesting that you you, you tell this story as not a linear trajectory from uh, you know theoretical to more empirical. Um, and so I've got to think, what, what can we say about uh, a possible feedback loop between data and theory? I've got to imagine the pendulum kind of swings back and forth, uh, perhaps when we are confident about our theoretical or uh, our theoretical approach or what the models say, we then shift into data to try to quantify or prove the models, as you say. But then, you know, let's say right now, we are not so sure about our models at the financial system after the financial crisis, or there seems to be some question about how inflation actually happens, uh, given that you know in the U.S. we see we we thought we were at full employment, but we don't see any pressure on uh, on price levels, and so maybe we need to revisit the theory. So is is there anything you can say about this feedback loop, and is it possible that the pendulum could swing back into uh, a, a purely theoretical approach compared to where we are right now? Uh, so there is, I think there is three three types of dynamics that are superposing. One is, uh, yes, theory was dominant in the 80s, well, like 70s, 80s, let's just say, and now we're having a a data pushback or a fact pushback. That's what economists feel. But there are two other things at work. Uh, One is field dynamics. I mean, agricultural economics is very different from development economics. You might even argue that development economics is not even finished with its own theoretical reconstruction, what is, while it's totally different in inequality economics, for instance. And then you have, I mean, the notion that you have a feedback loop, it looks, it means it's, it's fairly accepted that theory comes first. And it's not, I mean, Beneath all this, you have very long-standing debates on whether theory comes first or data comes first, and it has not—it has not always been accepted that theory would come first. Maybe in top journal it has been so, and it—it's not even clear to me that in top, let's say, U.S. department like U.S. graduate school, because this is how you were you trained. Uh, young economists, it has been so. There is huge difference between Berkeley and what is a theory at Chicago and what, what is a theory at MIT. And it's not clear to me theory has ever ruled at MIT, for instance. So it might just be that different notions of uh, whether theory comes first or not uh, are in competition and this is shifting. And there has always, always been debate. I mean, in the 40s and 50s, you had a big clash on, on business cycles. Uh, with the NBA tradition being you look at data first and you try to identify, you, you try to map your data to find regularities and then maybe you try to explain them. And the Coase Commission was more, no, you have to build a model on the an exhaustive theoretical models of the economy and then you look for data and you estimate your parameters and you test uh, what generates business cycles. And it was a, it, it was a huge clash and it's not clear you can say maybe in the top five journal in the 80s, 
uh, theory, the, the, the Coles Commission approach is, is one, clearly. But it's not clear it was the case in the government. Now, what you see, and you're right, uh, that um, on that feedback look that, uh, for instance, uh, I know you had on your podcast Dan Hirschman, and he's doing a lot of interesting research on stylized facts. And there is a notion that stylized fact is fashionable again. And that's a sign that you're getting a data pushback, maybe. Uh, what is getting more prestigious very recently in post-crisis in economics, and what circulates better, and what makes a good paper is, for instance, when you have a new striking sets of data that you can represent. So, I mean, the, the top one, how the top one percent evolve, or uh, or whether, uh, for instance, in health economics that has been discussed a lot this week, these drugs work or doesn't work, so it works better after a uh, reform and things like that. So you you're fishing from for stylized fa stylized facts. That is facts that stands uh, that are circulated independently from theory. And then you're fishing from a theory that can explain that these new striking facts. And in that sense, there is a, a feedback loop now. This is fashion, doing, trying to find stylized facts is fashionable again. One thing that Dan brought up in that episode um, when he talked about stylized facts is how uh, the approach of how, how we frame a debate, or in, in his specific example, inequality, can be based on the data available to us. And so... It wasn't obvious necessarily uh, that inequality was shaping out the way it was over the last century in the United States because the available data from taxes uh, kind of shifted from being only the rich were, were the ones paying taxes, and so that's the data we had, and then it went to a period where that data, where we were collecting tax data, but it was kind of for privacy concerns, um, it wasn't obvious how those dynamics were shifting. And now we have a lot more data, and so we develop stylized facts about how the 1%, so to speak, is getting, um, is, is getting richer. And so I've got to think that it's, there's an impact on how we approach the empirics when more data becomes available. And on, on the same level, we have computer software that is able to do statistical work that 100 years ago would take... 16, 20 economists, you know, two weeks to do, you can now do in Stata or R uh, in an hour or less. And so how, how much of this, this change in approach to, or, or emphasis on empirics can be explained by the increase in computational power and just the volume of available data sets that we didn't have uh, even 40, 50 years ago? So there are three things here. So there's two. Let's separate out data and computer. Um, on the data part, and what Dan says about satellite facts and how. Um, so yes, sure, you couldn't see. There is there are three things here. Uh, one is that of course, if you don't have data, you cannot see, for instance, the rise of the one person. But another feature is whether you're actually trying to look at these kind of phenomena. I mean, in the 60s and 70s, uh, the marginal rate of uh, income taxation of, of uh, the top marginal rate was like uh, 80, 90%, and then it went back to 70%, but it was huge. It was still huge. And, and the concern was with poverty, not inequality. So not on, you may not have the data, or maybe you had the data, or maybe the data was bad quality. But what is equally important is that you will not, you would not look for patterns in that data. 
these data were not interesting because these were not a question at, at, at some point, right? So you get, you get the question people are asking, you get the data available that is not independent. I mean, if you ask a new question and you can't find any response, you're going to try um, to produce new kinds of data. In the 60s and 70s, for instance, where the period, the PSID was, uh, um, was organized and was systematized. And so you had new types of data emerging. And then you have the techniques. And so, yes, we have more data now. So that's one, that's one fact. Uh, but there are two, two questions. Uh, one question is whether the quality is better. So, for instance, you can say in the 60s you didn't have a lot of data. Uh, two things. Um, uh, one is it's not it's not an absolute thing when you have you say we have more data or we now we say we have a lot of data. What matters is not the absolute of how much data you have is uh, whether you have more data uh, given your technical ability to use them and to exploit them. So for instance, from now we tend to think that in the 60s it didn't have much data. But when you when you actually go back and look at the testimonies of the 60s and turn of the 70s, economists were just just flowed out by data. They were saying we we have it was a moment you had more, for instance, micro data, national account data, micro data on internal industry transaction data, survey data on economic behavior as well. So uh, from now, it doesn't seem much, but then it seemed already too much. And you have, for instance, uh, Jorgensen, who is a famous economist, saying, uh, we're not using all them. We have no idea how to use this data. Uh, the quality is not what we wanted because we are not controlling how this data are produced, and we have too much. So that was at the turn of the 70s. And then you had, you had uh, new techniques on, for instance, uh, microeconometrics and panel data, econometrics and things like that. And, and economists got, got into how to use this data and try to find causality in them. So that notion that we have more, uh, it's something that is actually recurring. Of course we have more, but we also have the feeling that we have more data because we are another age in which uh, our techniques need to catch on with the amount of data available. We have like, we, we're able to record in real time all types of economics behavior, consumption behavior, finance behavior, investment behavior, uh, pricing, like uh, Uber data and whatsoever, and we are not. It's not clear yet how we can make use of them, and that's uh, all. What's happening with trying to take machine learning technique and and tame them so that economists can use them in a way that they want, I and mean, then to to identify causal relationships. So you, in fact, you don't have just more data. You have like cycles of big data, and at some point, um, the techniques is getting better. And, and so you don't feel you have too much data. And at some point, you just have a new surge of data and techniques need to catch on. And, and we are actually experiencing right now that kind of, of phenomenon. Now, computer. Computer is another kind of issue. Uh, you, of course, computer changed change the way uh, you do economics. But when you say that, you don't say much. Why? Because, uh, yes. A computer has changed economics a lot in the past 40 years, but very selectively. If it was only a matter of getting better computing techniques, the techniques that were, that were in need of better computer, like at the turn of the 80s, were macroeconometrics modeling, 
big big macro models and um, and uh, computational general equilibrium. And these two techniques were totally marginalized. And new techniques that don't need as much compute computational of course, there are some that needed computational power. For instance, estimating uh, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium techniques, uh, we needed more better computer. But for instance, if you want to do rational uh, randomized control experiment, you actually could do that already back in the 70s. You already had enough computer to do that. So my point is that, yes, computer allows you to do a lot more, uh, a lot, uh, more um, empirical economics. But what type of empirical economics has become successful is not explained by computer. Actually, what, what empirical economics uh, is now considered good empirical economics is filtered by uh, what we call in history epistemological commitments. For instance, uh, what is very important is uh, what is a good proof for economics. And at the time, uh, computer was changing a lot in the 80s. And you, you, you were beginning to to have your own personal computers. Uh, what is a good proof was not changing for a long time. A good proof in economics remained like having an analytical proof, uh, having a model. Then you solve your model. Then you have a closed form solution, and then then you do your econometrics work. Numerical approximation were not very much in fashion. It's just now that it's getting better. So there is a whole range of techniques that you could use that were not being used in economics in spite of having the computational ability to do so because they were not considered like good good economics. You have the same problem today with agent-based modeling that, that is being more influential, but that is still challenging techniques. But because this is not the same concepts of proof, this is not the same way of doing econometric, uh, of economics. And finally, um, you have that no. You have you, people have that notion that computer was meant to change empirical economics, but is having no impact on theory, and that's what explains why why we're having an empirical revolution. But that's just not true. I mean, a computer could have changed theory as much as it's changed empirical economics. In other science and other field, you have automated theory improving, and you have a very different way of using simulation to do some empirical uh, some theoretical work for instance in physics uh, simulation has been accepted on a wider scale for decades and they have really changed the way you do nuclear physics for instance and this is not the case in economics again because what's a good proof and what's a good theory uh, needed to change uh, you mentioned experimental uh, economics earlier, and Vernon Smith was on the podcast a few months ago, and, and he talked a little bit about his work of using the laboratory to uh, to kind of get a richer understanding of, of human behavior or what we consider economic uh, interactions. And so experimental economics is kind of interesting because even if one believes in this dichotomy of empirics and theory, in experimental economics, you're creating your own data set um, based on some theory or modifying theory. And so it's kind of interesting because experimental economics is then much better understood or described as an applied economics, as you say, um, because it is not really creating a model and then fitting data to it uh, because it is operating on a different dimension. So how do you see experimental economics fitting into your analysis? 
so I didn't do uh, firsthand uh, historical um, historical work on experimental clinics. I mostly relied on the PhD dissertation of one of my colleagues, Andres Forensic, uh, who wrote a wonderful dissertation on, on the history of experimental economics, was uh, based on ar archival work and in interviews of Ernest Minstrel Plots and many other many other protagonists. And what he shows that I find interesting for our collective stories, uh, what he shows is basically that that experimentalists like Vernon Smith or Charles Lotz and others, the, at the moment they begin working on experiment, it was in the 60s and 70s, and it was a moment where where there was a clear picking order between theory data, data and that data at that time were considered uh, of a lower kind. I mean, being the quality was said it was said that the quality was bad, and what they tried to do was to improve the quality of data. So, um, so to quote Andres, he said, it, it was what experimentalists tried to do was to turn data into a trustworthy partner for economic theory. So what they tried to do was changing the hierarchy, changing the pecking order. And how they did that was by, um, rather than taking data from outside, like uh, creating their own data sets in a controlled environment that is creating cleaner data in, with processes that could be reproduced and repeated, basically. So my way of seeing that is that, well, the, they, by, by, by creating uh, controlled sets of data, they, they change the hierarchy between theoretical and applied work or empirical work. Now, what Andres shows as well is that it was, I don't know what Vernon Smith told you, but he went to look into the referral reports and correspondence with editors at the beginning of that era in the 80s. And it was not something immediate at all. I mean, these people like Plot and Smith, they fought to get other economists to understand that experimental data were better not power that statistical data. And when they get referral reports saying these data have no interest in economics, they were writing back saying, you don't, you don't understand my data are clean because it's been produced in a control environment to just match a theoretical hypothesis. And so this is very useful for economists, but it took decades for, for this to become accepted. Uh, so when we look at this, this shift in, in approach uh, over the last, I don't know, 50 or so years, do you see any tangible effects uh, that this has had on policy outcomes about, um, you know, let's say you, you said in the 70s and 80s where the what was happening in economics academia was much more theoretical. Uh, did that have any repercussions that we can see on policy um, or compared to today when there's more of an applied approach and we're using more data? Uh, how how does it kind of transpire to outside of the academic world? My way of seeing that it's a difficult question, uh, if only because uh, if you really wanted to understand uh, to answer it, you got to take into account what's happening now under Trump, and you know that that distrust of data and distrust of public expertise of economists whatsoever. Uh, but what is what what makes more sense to me is to flip the question because. I don't see like economists having an empirical revolution and bringing it into the policy sphere. It's, to me, it's just the reverse. One reason why there was that empirical revolution or something more complex like an applied turn, if you want to call it that way, is because of policy demands. 
So that would go the other way. It's because policy was changing and policy regimes were changing that you had first demand for cost-benefit analysis, that then you, you had, I mean, uh, the government, for instance, in the U.S., wanted to, to, to build market-like uh, way of handling policy. And so there, there was a market for designers and there was a market for experiment to, to, to have an, an impact on policy. So I, I would say there is no independence. And if, if one thing, probably the policy demands came first and the economists were able to actually affect policy uh, because they they had tools to offer uh, to to match that that public demand. Does it make sense? Yeah, I, I think that so that that's the same sort of feedback loop. You know, it's a chicken and egg situation that uh, you kind of brought up earlier with uh, with with em empirics and theory that they they kind of interact with one another. So it's there's not a starting point of okay economics is in this place right now and so policy reflects that uh, th there's there's more of a they're they're interacting with each other based on the policy demands of uh, of the time yeah exactly well Beatrice thank you for coming on the podcast thank you very much this episode of upset patterns was hosted by will Comperl and recorded in New York my guest today was Beatrice Charrier. Email us at upsetpatterns at gmail.com or follow Upset Patterns on Twitter.